Welcome to the St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship Podcast. Today, one of our teaching leaders, Vicki Tatko, will be discussing Genesis chapters 18 and 19. St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship, or BSF, is currently meeting virtually on Zoom every Monday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. For more information and to connect with our class, visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. That's bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Now let's prepare our hearts, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, and join Vicki as she shares truths from God's Word. Welcome to BSF. My name is Vicki. We're in Genesis 18 and 19 tonight. Let me pray for us and we will get started. Lord, thank you for your word. And in this weird time of COVID, still providing for us a way that we can gather before your word together. Thank you for loving us enough to share not only good things that we want to hear, but also hard things that we need to hear. Help us to, Father, through your Holy Spirit, to have ears to hear um, the truth and to respond uh, humbly and um, rightly before you. Lord, would you increase our love for you? Would you help our lives to be more in alignment with uh, your word and with your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his mission? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When someone says, I have good news and bad news, it means there's both. It's usually wrapped all together like a tangle of Christmas lights or a knotted necklace. You can choose which to hear first, maybe, but you don't get to pick just one. Um, I just want to hear good news, but it doesn't work out that way. It'd be nice if we can control that, but we can't. There is good news and bad news. There's good news and bad news. I'm, I'm not hurt, but the car is totaled. Uh, bad news and good news. I'm being laid off. But the severance package is generous. Bad news and good news. Well, I've put on weight during COVID. But look how God has provided for me, even in these uncertain times. There's good news and bad news. It's inextricably woven together, and we have to face it all, all together to get it the right perspective and respond rightly. Today's passage, Genesis 18 and 19, is that whole package. There's good news and bad news, and it's woven all together, and we will see a lot of hard truths about God's wrath, about human sin, um, but there's also good news that God is patient, He's pursuing, He's generous, He's merciful. A temptation we have, we might feel, is to just focus on one, just look for the good news, or just look for the bad, or we might be tempted to avoid altogether, to stop watching, uh, move on to another passage of scripture that's more uh, palatable. But we must take it all in. If you and I want to grow in Christ, spiritually mature, we must take it all in. In fact, the best net confidence that you and I can have in navigating the good news and bad news, all of it that life brings to us um, the, in the news, in the literal news, or um, in Scripture, is the best confidence we have in navigating all that is God Himself. 
His unchanging character is the surest anchor and guide through life, now and forever. And so this brings us to what I hope that we can learn today as we're studying Genesis 18 and 19, that you and I can trust God to dispense judgment and mercy perfectly. You and I can trust God to dispense judgment and mercy perfectly because His perfect attributes are all perfect all the time. He is 100% merciful and 100% just at the same time. Okay, for our outline, we're going to look at this is one visit, Genesis 18 and 19. Um, it's one visit of the Lord's appearance. It there occurs in two parts, and it has an epilogue. And so, chapter 18, the Lord involves Abraham. In chapter 19, verses 1 to 29, the Lord judges Sodom and rescues Lot. The epilogue uh, is, in verses 30 to 38, what happened to Lot. And so, we can see Chapter 18 is about the Lord and Abraham. Chapter 19 is about the Lord, Lot, and Sodom. Um, Okay, so two quick things before we dive into chapter 18 that I want us to notice um, or keep in mind. These two chapters are intricately interwoven with parallel imagery, which is why I'm including all of chapter 18. I know that that we covered that last week. Uh, in the first 15 verses, but there's much to ponder here, and I thought it would be helpful for us to look at the parallels. Um, and so, I'm, if you haven't already studied, uh, done your lesson, I'm going to encourage you to pause right now and read or listen to 18 and 19 and pay attention to both the storyline, but also tune your ear to listen to parallels between those two chapters and also parallels uh, in other parts of Genesis, for instance, uh, between Lot and Sodom and also Noah and the flood. There's some interesting parallels there. Okay, second thing to keep in mind, um, keep Genesis, the original audience of Genesis in mind. Um, Moses was writing most likely to the Israelites in the desert who were uh, being led to the promised land. And in that if you know that story at all, you know that the Israelites struggled to trust the Lord. They entered into a covenant with him, but they were quick to rebel in Exodus 32 and 34. Uh, that is a very helpful background uh, for this passage. If you uh, have an opportunity to read that, I inc- really encourage you. Um, Genesis, or sorry, 2 Peter 2.6 tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah were examples to warn us about what will happen to the ungodly. And so, while Genesis 18 and 19 speaks of outsiders, people who are outside the covenant, who do not believe in God or are claiming to follow Him, remember, this was written to insiders who struggled with that who struggled to believe God, to struggle to um, submit to his good uh, kingship. And so this is what, just as it was written in Genesis, <laughs> in Moses' time, this was written to insiders as warning and encouragement. And so, um, not outsiders. And there's good news. Uh, God is quick to forgive for those who repent. There's also bad news. Sin has consequences. And so, I encourage us how much more should we as Christians, those of us who believe in Christ, uh, be 
eager to take to heart the bad news and the good news and not just wave it away and assume like, oh, that's talking about people out there. No, it's this is written for us, for your heart, for mine, and for all of ours together. Uh, okay, so with that, let's jump into chapter 18. Uh, we see the Lord visits Abraham on his way to Sodom. The Lord involves Abraham in his work. And so at this, uh, if we look uh, I'm just going to go through these first 15 verses quickly because we've uh, already looked at them. But I want you to be thinking about, in your mind, in as this narrative is told, why does the Lord visit? Why is it with three personages? Why is he appearing to Abraham in the first part of this visit? Um, and so we get to Abraham's hospitality, verses 1 and 2. Um, Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day near the great trees of Mamre near Hebron. I will show you in a little bit where that is on the map. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them. And he bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought. And then you may all wash your feet and rest under the tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. Uh, we see Abraham, Abraham's posture, how he hurries, how he humbles himself, uh, what he offers in those next verses, 6 to 8, um, and the service that he offers is generous and honoring. Abraham is offering the Lord his very best. And the Lord receives this gift, even though neither we know as readers, neither he nor the angels needed physical sustenance, needed physical rest. Um, and then after the dinner, there's some conversation starting in verse 9, 9 to 15. We see three things. The Lord has a question. It leads to a promise. And then there's an evaluation or a confirmation of what the Lord can see. And so... Um, the Lord's question, where is your wife? The Lord reiterates the the promise of offspring through Sarah. Um, even though she's 90 years old and Abraham is 100, the Lord has said that this is going to happen. He said that in the last chapter, um, the last time the Lord appeared. But here we have it in verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, there's an interesting exchange in the next, um, up through verse 15, about um, Sarah, and she wasn't presumably visible. And yet, the Lord reveals to Abraham and Sarah that he saw her. He saw her laugh. <laughs> she said, I didn't laugh. He said, yes, you did. And um, the Lord is letting Abraham and Sarah know that he sees everything. And his rhetorical question is anything too hard for the Lord. He can do anything. And <clears throat> that sets, um, we're going to see some parallels to that uh, in chapter 19, but let's go on. The visit is over. And when the men got up to leave, verse 16, they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham walked along them, along with them to see them on their way. And so um, this is a map of Israel. It's topographical. You can sort of see here at this end of this green section in the, um, the, the ridge, uh, there's Hebron and where we think the Oaks of Mamre were. 
you can see there's a height of an elevation that would look up over what we know as the Dead Sea, now or what we call that, and this is the probably where the plain was, the Valley of the Kings. Of I'm sorry, the Valley of Sedim, the Valley of the Kings is is up a little bit, um, but the the cities of the plain were probably in this in this rift valley. And so you can see it's probably 30 miles away, 40 miles away, depending on where the location was. Scholars debate um, where the location of Sodom and Gomorrah was, but it would have been visible. And so that's why um, they're saying they're leaving and they can see it. Um, In this next section, verses 16 to 33, the Lord is showing Abraham a new aspect of what it means to be in covenant relationship with him. And I think there's five things that we can see. This is unpacking and giving giving legs to the the command and the promise that the Lord gave in 17:1 where he appeared to Abraham and said, "I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers." And so this we see there's there's an aspect, what does that mean? Okay, we're going to learn five things. Um, one, we've already seen. It means giving God your very best. Um, this uh, God doesn't need what we give him, but it's good for our hearts. And this would have reinforced to the Israelites the beauty of the Levitical sacrifice, sacrificial system that the Lord had given to them through Moses that they could, an unholy people, be in, in communion with a holy God. Um, and so, and it goes the set from verse 16 with this walking he's walking abraham is walking with the lord like literally he's walking with them um it walking with the being in covenant with the lord means spending time with him and it means going in the direction that god is going um just as god trained the israelites to follow the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud um, where he was, uh, his he was symbolically represented, um, and so we see also a third thing: um, being in covenant with God means being privy to His plans, and um, we can see that in verse seventeen. The Lord asks uh, apparently a rhetorical question to Himself, but maybe he did. I'm assuming he did it out loud. I don't. I'm not sure about that. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And the answer to that rhetorical question ends up, we see, being no. That um, God is beholden to none of his creatures. He's the great creator king, and yet his heart is generous. He wanted to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he is now walking with Abraham. That walking means there's a spending time together. There's a sharing himself in ways um, where he would condescend so that Abraham, with his finite mind, could understand things about the infinite God. Um, this is God is not obligated to do that with any of his creatures. And it doesn't mean that God is sharing everything with Abraham. He's, he, we know he, he doesn't. He's not. But what he shares is generous. And this question frames this as a great privilege. Remind me of Deuteronomy 29, 29, where Moses speaks to the to the Israelites, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do the words of this, this law. And so that revelation is meant, being privy to his plans, to draw 
draw you in deeper to be more secure in your relationship with the Lord and um, leads us to the next thing, verse four, being in covenant, or I'm sorry, not verse four, number four, being in covenant with God means cooperating wholeheartedly with his plans. I think we can see two aspects of that in verses 18 and 19. Um, One, it means receiving God's promises and ordering your life accordingly. And so we see in verse 18, um, God is reiterating the promises that he has given to to Abraham starting in, in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. That's God's plan, and Abraham was supposed to receive that and order his life around it. Uh, the second part of that, cooperating wholeheartedly with his plans, means um, we can see in verse 19, instructing others about God and his ways. For I have chosen him, verse 19, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised to him, what he has promised him. So this harkens back to Genesis 1, 26, 28, where uh, humanity was to be God's vice regents in creation to rule. And actually in Hebrew, uh, the word here, will he will direct, is the word command. Um, there's, a, there's a beneficent ruling here. And it looks forward to uh, the famous chapter, Deuteronomy 6, where um, God charges not just the head of this nation, Abraham, but all parents to uh, do this with their children, to teach and direct their children in the way of the Lord. Um, And the fifth and final thing I think we can see in this section about what it means to be in covenant relationship with God means having a selfless priestly role in God's work. Um. It means representing God to the people. That's actually what has happening in 19, that Abraham would be directing his children. He, they, he would be representing God to the people. And then um, it also means representing the people before God. That's what a priest does. He's an intermediary. And so um, when God called the nation of Israel to himself, um, at Mount Sinai, he said in Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, for here you go, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." Being in covenant with God means having a priestly role. And this is what is happening now in the rest of chapter 18. The people of Sodom are in trouble. We were warned about it in chapter 14, and now they're in big trouble. So the question, why did the Lord visit Abraham on his way to Sodom? I suggest to you it is for this. God wanted Abraham to pray on behalf of the people of Sodom. Um, not rejoice over them getting what was coming to them, but to plead on their behalf and be involved in that. Um, and so we see that the Lord is announcing or telling what he's doing. Um, verse 20 and 21, the, the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. 
that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So as Abel's blood cried out to the Lord from the ground, so do the cries of oppressed people go up to God. Uh, there's a sound. And um, as thing ahead to chapter 19 and also uh, the revelry of Exodus 32, there was sound when that rabble surrounded Lot's house that we're going to get to. Violence and wickedness have their own boastful, loud cries. Now, we know that God just showed us the, um, showed the, narr- the narrator just showed us that God saw Sarah laugh, and so we know it's not a, it's not a uh, we're not leaping to conclusions to know that God wasn't coming down to Sodom because He didn't already know or see what was happening there, um, but He came because He is patient and long suffering, and He gives many chances to turn from sin. He was going to give Sodom one last pop quiz, and that, my friends, is good news. It is God is merciful. Who has God raised up to pray for you and for me when we needed it? How has He delayed judgment or delayed discipline on you when you've been slow to repent? Um, his good news that God is so merciful. Um, Abraham responds to this news in verses 22 to 32, and it shows that he is embracing this covenant priestly role. Um, And so Abraham had put his life on the line to rescue actually these same people in Genesis 14. They had not turned away from sin. They were in deeper trouble now than they were before. Um, And yet he still, he goes to bat for them, verse 23 24, we'll read, and then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50, 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? And he leans now. It's not, he doesn't lean into the righteousness or the perfectness of the people, which um, it doesn't suggest probably that the people were righteous because they were perfect. It was probably, he's saying, righteous in the way of Genesis fifteen six to believe the Lord, to believe his word, and having that be counted as righteousness. Um, but now we see he's leaning into not the righteousness of the people, but rather the character of God. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, Treating the the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? And so, we see um, God, Abraham is humble, and but he's bold to leverage his relationship with the Lord, his knowledge of the Lord, on someone else's behalf. And they don't deserve it, and yet that was his role. Um, in this conversation, we see in verse 26, the Lord receives Abraham's plea and he agrees. And then this interesting exchange in verses 27 to 32, Abraham petitions for a smaller number of righteous people in succession. So not 50, but 45, 30, 20, until the Lord just agreed to not destroy the city for the sake of 10 righteous. And then um, what Abraham sensed, it seems, in verse 32, uh, it's confirmed in verse 33. The conversation is over. Um, The Lord is finished speaking with Abram. Why didn't he go down to five? I don't know. Um, The conversation was over. 
So a principle I think we can learn from this section is that God involves his people in his work. God involves his people in his work. Don't miss this good news. And notice how the Lord, the narrator slows down in verses 17 to 32. He's given the blow by blow. You and I as maybe more modern readers, we might think like, come on, this is really dragging here. Like, come on, they're losing people. They're, they're getting distracted. Let's skip to the action. But the narrator sees this as really important. This exchange receives more than anything, like the other, like it's the, it's a focus, and we're told blow by blow. Um, how different from the kind of activities that we think, like, how is God going to be involve us? Like, maybe ways that the kind of things that you and I could post on social media we feel good about. This is humble work before the Lord interceding. It is not glorious work, but it reminds me of Jesus' prayers in John 17, his prayers in Gethsemane. It's amazing that the Lord would condescend to hear us. Um, God cares about the prayers of his people, and he often leads his people to pray before he works powerfully. Prayer often precedes God's powerful work. When you were little, did you ever do a job with your parents? Um bake cookies or fix the dishwasher or pull weeds. Uh, here's a news flash. <laughs> you were probably not a huge help. Um, at least I can say I wasn't. Um, but when my pa- when my mom taught me to cook, when she taught me to clean the counters, when she taught me how to clean a toilet, it, it was to teach me, to share that time with me, to delight in me and help me prepare for my life. And I, um, in that way, how much more does God involve his people in his work? He doesn't need to. Um, He doesn't need your service or mine to accomplish his plans, but he wants us to participate. um, Like Jesus let the servants pour out the wine at the Cana wedding. Um, God involves us and he lets his people pour out his grace. The logical conclusion then is that what you receive and understand about the Lord and his ways are not just for you. You and I are called to share and act. God's work is not just for pastors and ministry workers, um, but by the Holy Spirit, God equips each believer in Christ ways to be about his business. And he calls us to pray in ways that align with his character. What has God shared with you about who he is? Even in this Genesis study, what are his plans in the world? Um, How eager are you to share that with other people? And where is God calling you to be involved in his work? Serving or praying, teaching, um, giving financially. How are you going to respond? In this time of COVID, a lot of our kind of, you know, maybe... Maybe the ways that you thought you were serving have been taken away. And that is actually sort of my, the case for me. And um, the question is, am I willing, are you willing to pray and ask the Lord to show us creative ways that we can, even in this time where we can't necessarily be together with people in the way that we normally would, we could still be about his work. Um, would you ask him to help you with that? God's character is the only reliable anchor through the ups and downs of life. We can trust him to dispense judgment and mercy perfectly. Um, So we get into Genesis 19, um, the Lord's test of Sodom and his mercy on Lot, um, verses 1 to 29. 
Um, we know that God is giving Sodom this test, and it's a last chance. We're going to see parallels with the previous chapter. We see in verses 1 to 3, just like Abraham offered hospitality to the Lord to the Lord and his messengers, so does Lot. And he greeted and welcomed them. Um, they initially declined, and yet he insisted, verse 3, so strongly that they did agree and they entered his house. Um, did he know that what would happen to them if they were out in the square? Uh, verse 8 seems to suggest that um, him extending the protection of his roof or the shade of his roof was not just a symbolic gesture, so he probably did. Um, in verses 4 to 11, we see after dinner there was conversation, just like in chapters uh, chapter 18. Remember, we had a question, a promise, and then an evaluation of sight. And so here we have a question, a promise, an evaluation of sight. Um, not the Lord was speaking in verse in chapter eighteen, and all those things were really good. And now we have the men of Sodom who are allowed to speak, um, and it was it is horrific and ghastly. Um, the question that they're asking, uh, verse four, is um, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Um, and the in verse four, it earlier it stressed completeness. Um, everyone was there. All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Um, and who protested? There was just one, and it was Lot. And verse six to seven, he went out to them. Which probably was uh, we had to see that as real, as probably very brave, um, even though we're going to critique Lot in just a few, just a verse or two. Um, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him, and he said, "No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing." So Lot is naming this is part of God's grace. Um, Lot is naming what they're doing as wicked, and that's an opportunity for them to turn. Um, and yet, uh, look, verse 8, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Well, um, so Lot was right to name the Sodom, the men of Sodom's desire wicked, but he also called them brothers. So he seems compromised. The compromise that he suggests is horrific. Um, weren't Lot's daughters already under the protection and the shade of the shelter of his roof? Um, how would their situ? How would the the what he offers in verse eight been any less wicked? Um, even though Second um, Peter two describes Lot as a righteous man who is tormented in his soul by Sodom's wickedness, he does seem that living in this culture has so permeated him um, that he's he's lost an ability to make a wise, a morally wise decision. Um, so we had the question, and now we have a promise. Uh, verse 9, this, uh, the Sodomite women respond, Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. 
They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moving forward to break down the door. Um, that is a futile, empty promise that they ultimately are proved to be unable to to harm someone whom the Lord uh, delivers. The unrepentant heart is offended to hear of its wickedness, and um, yet God was still in charge. His angels pull Lot back and shut the door. It's the same word that we saw um, of the Lord shutting Noah and his family in the ark. Judgment, the time for judgment has nearly come, and now we have an evaluation of sight. And so we can see there's a physical blindness um, that goes along now with the spiritual blindness that they have. Um, Miraculously, all the men, young and old, were struck with blindness so that they could not find the door, even though it seems like they were still enraged and were trying. Um, And then we go on. Okay, so there's the test, end of the test. Um, Here's the results. Uh, Verses 12 to 13, as the Lord did with his with Abraham, he revealed his plan. Now the Lord's agents reveal what's ha- going to happen to Lot. Um, they said, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry uh, to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And so we do see here Lot does believe. He believes their words, and he responds. He goes out to his betrothed again pretty brave probably um out to his betrothed sons-in-law but they think he's joking um and then we see uh in verses 15 to 16 we had seen abraham walked with the lord but lot was had to be dragged away um he hesitated it's why is that it's unclear um the, the text shows that this hesitation is foolish It is foolish to resist God's deliverance. It is foolish to doubt his judgment. Um, It is the Lord is merciful and kind. Shouldn't we gladly let go of anything that would compromise our relationship with him? Shouldn't we fear in a in a reverent way um, any possible connection with anything that would that would pollute us? There is urgency. Do not delay. And so we see, because the Lord was merciful to them, verse 16, there were four hands, presumably these two men were humanoid, and they had, I mean, their two hands, and four, they grabbed Lot's hand and his two daughters and his wife, and they led them out. Out of that big city, only four. Um, And so Abraham, um, we saw Abraham interceded selflessly for others, Um, Lot negotiates for his own safety in verses 17 to 22. Um, And then we have the visits. He escapes to this city that he negotiates for, Zor, which seems like it's in the plain. Um, We have the visits culmination of God judging Sodom. Uh, Verse 23, by the time Lot had reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Uh, we, then we see in verses uh, 27 to 29, uh, Abraham awoke. He saw the destruction. The narrator doesn't tell us how Abraham felt or what he thought, 
This was probably not the outcome Abraham had hoped for, and yet, was his praying in vain? Um, it does not seem so. Um, one, that was time of the Lord, right? But if you look at 29, um, who does God remember? He remembers Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So it seems like Abraham's intercessory, selfless prayers were the reason that Lot and his two daughters were saved. Um, There's an image in Scripture about God's wrath being like a cup. Um, He is patient, and so he delays his anger when when there's violence and injustice and immorality and pride. Um, Many creative ways that we as humans have found to um, rebel against God Um, But he's patient, and so he delays his anger. This delay does not mean indifference. It doesn't mean he's ignoring it or he's forgotten. The cup is slowly filling up. Drip, 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 drip. And he sends warnings like we saw in Genesis 14 to the the city of Sodom. He raises up the faithful to intercede like we saw in, in Genesis 18. And finally, at least in this case, we see God comes closer for one final test. Even during the test, there were multiple opportunities for the people of Sodom to repent and turn away from their wickedness. And yet, when they did not, God is just. He does not delight in pouring out justice or uh, judging a sinner, but he is just. Eventually, the cup is full to the brim, and it is poured out. This judgment is devastating. Um, And that points us actually to the Lord Jesus Christ who drank down the cup of God's wrath to the dregs so that all of us who put our faith in him will not need to face God's wrath but rather his embrace and blessing um, in the name of Jesus not because of anything we have done but just by his grace through faith. Principle I think we can learn from this division is that Um, God will surely judge the unrepentant and rescue the righteous. God will surely judge the unrepentant and rescue the righteous. God's judgment of Sodom illustrates in his example that the wages of sin is death. What was Sodom's sin? Um, Morally, we saw the sin portrayed was that of homosexuality. Is that a sin? Um, The Bible says yes. Uh, Old Testament and New Testament, God created us as sexual beings, and sex is good, but it is he, not not we, who define the right context for sexual relationship and behavior. And he has defined sex to be right within the marriage covenant Excuse me, of one man and one woman, as he created in Genesis 2. And all sexual acts, acts or thoughts or desires outside those confines are sinful and rebellious. Um, God's standard is purity and holiness, and he calls us to this. Um, Sin does not excuse us from being compassionate towards sinful people, but it doesn't entitle condoning it either. Um, And yet you and I should beware the thought that your sin or my sin um, of whatever flavor or type is somehow less grievous before God than another person's sin. Homosexuality was not the sodomite's only sin. Their hearts were full of violence. 
but and ultimately they refuse to respond to God's grace. Um, they den- denying God as judge does not allow the wicked to escape, escape judgment. Um, <clears throat> um, the death, physical and and spiritual, um, that we can are invited to escape is only through that escape is only through Jesus Christ, who bore our sin completely for us when he died um, on the cross. Um, all wrath fire uh, fell on him. And although he is only one person, he only died one death, Jesus could suffer for an infinite number of sins in that he was, all, he was also an infinite being, being God um, and perfect and righteous. Have you responded? How have you responded to God who has so graciously sacrificed his son that you might be hidden from his wrath in his righteousness? And do you consciously recognize the desperate plight of the unsaved in our world? What are you doing about it? We can trust God to dispense judgment, mercy, judgment and mercy perfectly. Okay, just briefly, this epilogue, what happened to Lot and his descendants, verses 30 to 38? Um, it's a sad commentary. We don't know why, uh, but he was a, Lot was afraid in Zor. He didn't go to live with Abraham. We don't know why. Um, everything he had invested in was wrong, and he went up in the mountains and he lived in a cave. Um, this is a warning. The fruit of a compromised life is very small. Um, a believer who is corrupted by worldliness will lack many things, even if God saves them. Um, and so we see in verses 31 to 38, two daughters plot incest, um, and they have uh, they have children, carry on Lot's line. And so that, that was part of Lot's compromise, the fruit of his family. It doesn't seem that Lot's daughters knew the way of the Lord. Um, they had a good desire to have children, but it was corrupted by horrifying methods like Ham, they uncovered the nakedness of their drunk father, and theirs was a decision of unbelief. God can't or won't bring me a husband, so I just have to make do with this is the best I can possibly do. Um, the principle I think that we can learn from this uh, division is that every life leaves a legacy. Every life leave, leaves a legacy. Just as a stone thrown in the water makes ripples, every life leaves a legacy. You will impact people. Some minorly, some significantly. Some significantly, who has impacted you for good, pointed you toward God? Have you thanked God for them? What legacy are you leaving, and how is your life characterized, or is it by compromise and the things of God, or are you pressing on to Jesus Christ, serving Him faithfully and loving those to whom He sends you? Um, we need to take in both good news and bad news to get the right perspective. We've seen a lot of hard truths in these two chapters about God's wrath, but there's good news that God is patient and generous and merciful. We must take them all together. God's character is the only reliable anchor through the ups and downs of life, and the right direction for any of us is to travel toward him, not away. What might that look like for you this week? To lean deeply into his character, to be holy about his work, to, to care for what and whom God cares for, and to flee wickedness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you pursue us and correct us, um, that you guide us. And thank you most of all, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to stand in our place and bear our wickedness. 
um, every and drink the cup of your wrath for our sins down to the last drop for those who have trusted in him by faith uh, through by grace through faith and so lord we thank you for him and we pray that you would help us to keep walking uh, faithfully um, to his glory in jesus name amen thanks again for listening to the st louis young adults bsf podcast Join us next time on Zoom on Monday, January 4th, 2021 at 7 p.m. Central Time as we discuss Genesis chapters 20 and 21. Please note that our class will be taking a Christmas break and will not be meeting on December 21st and December 28th. We will return on Zoom on Monday, January 4th. To connect with our class, like us on Facebook at STLYABSF or visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Bible Study Fellowship is an international, interdenominational, nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying God's Word one verse at a time and strengthening the local church. For more information, visit bsfinternational.org. That's bsfinternational.org.